This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show, and Salut Babette. We are broadcasting on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and I'd like to pay our respects to their elders past and present. Tonight's show is about a people's assembly on the lawns in front of Federal Parliament just before it opened in February 2020. I went to panel sessions from veterinarians for climate action so disturbed by the wildlife and livestock they were seeing damaged by drought and now the wildest bushfires we've ever seen. There were other sessions from architects and engineers. There were doctors worried about the mental health of people, um, sickened by smoke for weeks on end and people concerned to rehydrate our soils. There were many sessions there and you'll hear some of them tonight. The best part for me was that other people in the tent were often as experienced as the panel and everyone was engaged in the discussion. This is a new form of democracy, and uh, we want to get more people participating in it. For me, it's increasing the gene pool of ideas that get into governance. I'd like to welcome Tim Hollow from the Green Institute. He's the executive director, and he uh, did a huge organising job getting this uh, show on the road. Um, I'd like to ask you, Tim... How are you feeling about people's in people's assemblies as a way to broaden the gene pool of our democracy? Look, I think what we found with this um, with the people's assemblies at uh, Parliament was exactly what we had had hoped and expected: is that they're just a wonderful way for people to share our ideas in a really constructive manner. Um, and it's just um, it's it's a beautiful kind of counterpoint to the really problematic adversarial um, politics that you see inside the parliament building, where um, you know compromise is seen as a sign of weakness, and you've got to you know politics is all about fighting until you win. Um, the people's assemblies that we had going on outside were all about people sharing ideas constructively, learning from each other and finding creative ways through um, that benefit everyone together um, and that you know might be ideas that nobody's thought of. So it's absolutely a way of, of expanding the gene pool um, but also just expanding the way um, we can come up with ideas. Yes, I have recently been to the Climate Summit, Emergency Summit, and I know you were there too in Melbourne Town Hall, and there's, that was the Q&A format, you know, of experts on the stage and just a few questions getting through from the audience, and I felt what you achieved at that uh, People's Assembly was much more generous, much more, you know, respecting that people really have expertise and experience to be shared, and, and it was, I learned as much from the audience as I did from the experts. Yeah, look, that's that's a, a part of the point. You know, we do obviously have experts in in all sorts of fields who have a lot of important wisdom and just information that it's important to share. And you know, one of the critical things about good participatory and deliberative democracy is that it's got to be based on a shared understanding of reality. You know, and that's one of the things that our current politics does particularly poorly, of course. So much of our political discourse is just completely disconnected from reality. And so the wonderful thing with this kind of process is that you get a chance to hear from experts, absolutely, and, and develop that kind of shared understanding. But then everybody is an expert in how to how to see that implemented in their own life. And that's the critical point that this kind of process brings in. Yeah, it was like the community thinking aloud from my point of view. And I thought this is, this is really, I think you've done a bit as a political candidate going round uh, knocking on doors and you would have heard the same thing. People are so different and, and yet there's a pattern that emerges. And what do you feel now about democracy in general? People seem very grateful to have this opportunity, but in general I feel people are very disgusted by the democracy on show. I think what's happening is that people are very, very discouraged by the democracy on show, that's right, and increasingly of the opinion that what we have is not a particularly democratic system. Um, and, you know, democracy is about 
the people broadly coming together to determine our common future together. Um, and that is not what we have at the moment. Um, what we have is a system where we're told that democracy is just about turning up to vote once every few years and then shut up and go home, thank you very much. Advocacy is discouraged and rubbished unless you happen to have a very large amount of money or run a, uh, a coal mining corporation. Protest is delegitimised, it's criminalised in a lot of places and in a lot of ways. People are deeply, deeply disenchanted by the current system. They're disenfranchised by it. They don't feel like they're their voice matters anymore and it doesn't too much of the time it just doesn't so we need desperately to be building these new systems that can actually do the job Mm. The, on the second day, was all the parliamentarians came out, or some of them came out, and the Labor Party came out with a lot of people, and I respected that, that they brought a lot of their members out so that we could meet them. I was a bit, you know, it was, it was dramatic because as the uh, ALP speaker went on, Mark Butler, we'll hear him tonight, uh, they began a chanting, just a sort of impatience in the crowd, and it became quite loud, no more coal, because no matter what he said... The fact of the continued export of coal and gas is making everyone who cares about climate action just furious. I wonder, do you think it's really widespread that people are just feeling that government is an obstacle to the climate action we need? I think that's, yeah, it's becoming increasingly clear that that government, and it's not just this government is, is the point, it's not just this current Morrison government, but the, the Labour alternative just, frankly, is not, better enough. It's obviously better, but not anywhere near enough. And that was that frustration that was so palpable um, in that crowd. Um, And that's also what I mean by this idea of our politics being just completely disconnected from reality. The idea that that the ALP seem to have at a federal level, that you can talk about how committed you are to climate action while also being committed to continuing the coal industry and to expanding the gas industry at an extraordinary rate and coming out and saying there simply aren't any alternatives to the use of coal and steel making and things which are just patently, scientifically, demonstrably untrue just isn't going to wash anymore. We just can't let it happen. And so we do, yeah, we do really need a politics which is better than that. And I don't think we're going to get it from the current system, which is why I think the more we build and start to practice these participatory, deliberative processes at a, at a community level, the better off we're going to be. They're going to be the kinds of processes which are going to enable us to really get our communities on board with reducing emissions dramatically, whether that's through energy efficiency or community renewable energy or local food um, growing and preparation and distribution or um, community transport initiatives, um, all sorts of things which can dramatically lower our our emissions at a community level, or whether it's through also through building the social cohesion that we're going to need in the face of the increasing climate crisis. You've said that the new democratic norms need to be cultivated and they should not be based on capitalism, patriarchy and colonialism. Well, those isms are abstractions and I want to know how citizens fit into getting this system change. System change is a um, cloudy, murky thing to me, but how would you see it happening? I think it has to happen by doing. We need to actually start actively building these alternatives um, on the ground ourselves and as we do that we change our understandings um, for ourselves about how the world operates now and how the world should operate. Well it's happened before in history where things crumble and it seems in several countries like Brazil for example where the opposition leader was in prison. I mean your family experienced this in the Second World War. Can you just tell us what are the symptoms that you're seeing and that we must nip in the bud? What what do we have to push back in the box? All sorts of um, ideas and norms that are about exclusion and dominance are are the the real key to this, and and that's been you know so deeply held across our society in many different ways. But obviously, um, the the rise of authoritarianism around the world, which we see in, as I was saying, the criminalisation and delegitimisation of protest, we see it in the rise of of racist responses to things like the coronavirus um, and of, um, you know, government demanding um, 
respects, and we see it in, in militarised responses um, to, to um, disease and to climate um, catastrophes, all sorts of things like that. And we really need to be very careful of this idea that, you know, for instance, this idea that's spreading that climate change is so serious that we might need to suspend democratic rights or civil and political rights sometimes in the face of it. I think that's a very dangerous idea that we need to really confront and stand up to. Look, thank you, organisers. Thanks for giving me this opportunity to be able to speak. My name's Bruce Shillingsworth. I'm a Moorawari budgety man. I come from a little town called Bawarana, where the Darling starts. The Darling River is now called the Barker. I don't want to talk a bit about our rivers, which is so important. But first, I want to acknowledge the land on which we meet today. I want to acknowledge my elders both past, present and future. For they hold the memories, the tradition and the hopes for Aboriginal Australia. We must always remember that under this concrete and stone, this is and always will be traditional Aboriginal land. I want to also acknowledge my brothers and sisters that come from faraway land, come, come from across the ocean, that now lives in Australia, that calls Australia home. I want to say welcome, welcome, welcome. First Nations people have been here for thousands and thousands of years. First Nation people are feeling the brunt of what's happening to our environment. People, it's need time now that we need to wake up and listen. We need to listen to those voices that have been voiceless for the last 250 years. Our old people have said the land we live on has only been borrowed from our children. How do we give that back to our children and their children's children? Not in the condition it is today. So it is our responsibility to start protecting our planet and to look after Mother Earth. The destruction of the Murray-Darling, the Barker now we call it, has devastated our communities. People, when we've got a sick river, we've got a sick community. If we've got a dead river, we've got a dead community. My people, First Nation people, have been on the rivers for a long, long time. 40% of First Nation people lives along the Murray-Darling and the waterways. Why are my people are suffering? Why are they drinking water that's unacceptable? Why are the clearing of the land has affected my people? My people are now are dying and becoming sick. All because of the greed. All because of the greed and the taking of our waters. My old people have said no one owns the water. The water is there to be shared. The government and its corporate greed and capitalism has killed this country. I've got a message to our leaders and our politicians. I've got no faith in politicians. But I believe it's here, you standing out there in the audience, we have the answer, the answer's here with us. We are going to build a grassroots movement that no one's going to stop. Yeah. It is our turn, it is our time. People, we're going to now rise. We're going to fight for those things that affect in our lives. We're going to do it as united, as non-Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples together. You are now on a journey. We are now on a journey. That journey is not about any particular person or any particular group. The journey is about all of us. We want to send the message to the government that this government is now destroying our lives, our communities, and are not listening for the First Nations people. We are now going to send a voice. We're going to be the voice for those that have been voiceless for so many years. I will stand in the gap, you will stand in the gap, you will stand up for our Mother Earth that sustains us for thousands of years. Brothers and sisters, 
My people are out there, like I said, are drinking water that's unacceptable. We need filters on those tap for our communities. We need water tanks to put on every household in those communities. We need the water back into our rivers. Put the water back in the rivers. The dams are controlled by who? Who's controlling our waters? The corrupt government, overseas companies, the cotton farmers, the big irrigators that have pumped our water rivers dry. No more. We will say no more. We're now going to stop it. We have the answers. We're going to put pressure on this government. Now they need to listen to us. So let's keep up the fight. We've got to keep fighting. I will keep fighting for my First Nations people. Our First Nation people don't want to leave their lands that they have lived for thousands of years. I believe that this government wants to close down those communities. 90 communities that this government wants to shut down. But it's not going to happen in my time. It's not going to happen in your time. Because we are here and we're going to do something about it. So power to the people. We will unite now. It is our time. It is time. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. Uh, I'm the latest spokesperson on climate and energy and I've been joined this morning after we've just had our caucus meeting for the week by a large number of my Labor colleagues. Uh, Terry Butler, our Shadow Minister for the Environment. Pat Conroy, who assists me in climate and energy. From Victoria, we've got Libby Coker, Kate Thwaites, Jess Walsh, Peter Murphy, Jed Carney. Locally, we've got Alicia Payne and we've got Susan Templeman whose community in the Blue Mountains and the Hawkesbury has been battling bushfires yet again all through this year. So thank you very much for welcoming us here this morning. We know that uh, as smoke is shrouding the nation's parliament deep into the most awful of summers at the end of the hottest and driest year that Australia has ever experienced. And it wasn't just Australia. As you know, 2019 was one of the six hottest years on record around the world, the other five being 2018, 2017, 2016, 2015, 2014. If Senator Jim Nolan needs some evidence about climate change and human activity, perhaps that is a bit of evidence of human activity. But as awful, as distressing and as destructive as this summer has been, and it's not over yet, it should have come as no surprise because our leading scientists for years have been warning us of a steady increase in the forest fire danger index that has been tracking increases in average temperatures. They gave us the same advice on drought and it came to pass. They gave the same advice on the Great Barrier Reef and tragically that also came to pass. When I brought a motion to the Parliament in October last year, as did Adam Bant, who's just been elected as the leader of the Greens Party, for this Parliament, for this Parliament to declare a climate emergency, when I brought that motion, Scott Morrison would not even allow it to be debated. Would not even allow it to be debated. Instead, he spent last year warning that Labor's 2030 target that we took to the last election would wreck the economy, not protect it. He warned that Labor's renewable energy target would destroy jobs, not create them. And most ridiculously, he said that Labor's electric vehicle policy would destroy the Aussie weekend as we know it. Would destroy the Aussie weekend as we know it. As the costs of inaction unfold before our eyes, it is becoming increasingly crystal clear that the ideology, the division that we've only seen this morning in the Coalition Party room on climate change means that Scott Morrison is simply incapable of keeping Australians safe from the climate emergency. Simply incapable. And what's more, over the course of this period, it's clear we are also going to miss out on the jobs and the investment that will come from an ambitious and quick transition to a clean energy economy. Instead... 
All Australians get from their Prime Minister are lies and marketing spin. Lies like, we're meeting and beating our international climate commitments. Well, why then in December was Australia ranked 57th out of 57 nations on climate policy? Well, the reason why is because we're not even close to our international climate commitments, as modest as they are. As modest as they are, after coming down by 15% during Labor's last government, climate emissions have not budged. They have not budged since the government came to office almost 70 years ago. So instead of our modest Kyoto commitment of 5% between 2000 and 2020, we'll be lucky to make a 0.3% cut over 20 years. Barely a rounding error. Barely a rounding error. And over the course of the coming decade, Scott Morrison's own projections indicate we'll only get a 4% cut under their policies, at which rate it would take 230 years, 230 years to meet net zero emissions, not the 30 years that 300 climate scientists warned us was necessary only yesterday. Friends, the climate emergency is now undeniable. The climate emergency is now undeniable. And you are welcome here to say loudly and clearly that Australia deserves better. And under Labor, Australia will get better. Thank you very much. Now we've got Adam Bant still to speak before our rally, but Adam Bant, as you may have heard, has had quite a big day today, and we congratulate him on his election to the leader of the Greens. But uh, that means he is running a little bit behind. Ignition just a couple of weeks ago. The shadows you can understand because of the devastation that this summer's fires, which haven't yet ended, have been wreaking on our people, on our homes and on our beautiful bush and our animals that we are meant to be taking some care of. But the angry comes from knowing how much of this was preventable and knowing that we have been told for decades now that unless we keep coal in the ground, unless we keep gas in the ground and unless we keep oil in the ground, we are going to accelerate the climate emergency. And we were told in the 1990s and we were told in the 2000s and we were told in the 2010 and we are being told now and people are right to be angry because despite being told over and over and over again that we need to keep coal in the ground and we need a plan to get onto renewables as quickly as we possibly can we have a criminal government that comes into this parliament behind us and hugs coal and holds it up and tells us that there's no reason to be afraid. And when we ask them what their energy policy is, they say it is to support more coal mines and to start fracking the north of Australia and to start drilling oil out from the bite. And when we ask them, what is your plan? They say, well, don't worry, we're on track to meet our commitments. And what they don't tell the Australian people is that this summer's fires happened with one degree of global warming and the government, when they say they are on track, they are on track for three degrees of global warming. And between three and four degrees, we are talking about the population carrying capacity of this planet being reduced to a one billion people. And when you think about the wars and the conflicts and the devastation that is going to happen in that period of time, it is an emergency. It is an emergency now. And the first step to fixing a problem is acknowledging that you've got a problem. And that's why we'll push for this government to declare a climate emergency and come up with a plan right now to phase out coal so that we can look after the communities that are affected uh, along the way and the workers so, because it's not their fault that they're in an industry that we now know 
is a threat to life. We have an obligation to these people who have helped us keep the lights on and power our country for so long. But when we come up with a Green New Deal, a plan to transition away from coal and look after those communities as we make Australia more equal, people will understand that we can actually meet the challenge of this climate emergency. It is not beyond us. If we have the guts to take on the big corporations that are making their money out of destroying human life and the weak politicians that they've got in their pockets, we can solve these crises and we can create a better society. And I'll end by saying this, and I think Larissa might want to say a few words. A couple of weeks ago, as I was dropping my kids off to childcare in Melbourne, the air was so hazardous that the warning on my phone showed pictures of people wearing gas masks. And Scott Morrison says, well, we have to adapt to this as being the new normal. Well, I refuse to adapt to kids wearing gas masks. I refuse to selling out our children's future. I refuse to making summer a time where we fear for our lives and our safety. I want to protect everything that we love about this country. And that starts by having the guts to declare a climate emergency and coming up with a plan to phase out coal. And in my role and Larissa's role, which we are really delighted and honoured to have, our job is to force this government to act by working with you on the streets, in the parliament, in our communities. We will force this government to either act or go. Thank you. Bam. Well said, Leader of the Greens, Adam Brandt. Hey, yesterday, guys, you might not have seen, but we had the donations data released. And guess who's for sale? And guess who's buying the policies that sort their, that uh, improve their corporate private profits while cooking the rest of the planet? Just for that last year, in an election year, there was a million dollars donated to the major parties, to Labor, to Liberal, to the Nationals, um, and to One Nation for that matter, from the coal, oil and gas lobby. Big money is running that place and it is so wrong you guys should be running that place. This is meant to be a representative democracy. That's meant to be the people's house. That's what we see our job as, is to make your voice heard in there and to fight for change and to fight for the science and for humanity to be determining the decisions made in there. I'm from Queensland. We've got one of the biggest coal mines that's proposed that will further cook what's left of our Great Barrier Reef. Um, and they say there's gonna be jobs created, but they also say there's gonna be automation. We know they're lies. We know this company is just wanting to line its own pockets. It doesn't care about those regional communities. I think even the conservative commentators can now see that global coal demand is reducing. The rest of the world gets it. We as a government and as people that care about the future of this shared planet need to stand with those coal communities, transition off this toxic fossil fuel that is ruining all of our lives now, not just in the future, not just for future generations. It is affecting us now. We just lost a billion creatures. And that's on this government's watch. So thank you so much for being the conscience of our nation. Thank you for giving us the strength um, and the guts to keep bringing the fight up to those corrupt people in that building. They don't belong in that building, you do. We'll keep fighting for you. Thanks, everyone. We've got to go in there now, so bye. Keep it up. The next speaker was from the Veterinarians for Climate Action. This is a new group and they were part of the People's Assembly. Dr Gundy Rhodes, a New South Wales vet and farmer, vet for climate change, and she's uh, up in, um, does small and large animals up in Inverell, and she's talking about the effects of heat and drought and climate change on all sorts of livestock and wildlife. Big hand for Dr Gundy. Hi, I'm just a veterinarian, but I'm here as a voice for the animals. Let me tell you what it looked like in the last two years in my town where I live as a veterinarian, where we had the drought. That was before the fires. There is not any blade of grass left in, in the paddocks. The animals have all been sold. Livestock is bare. The koalas are dying because the trees are dead and there is no moisture in them anymore. I would get these koalas into my clinic and I cannot save them anymore because they are in kidney failure already. I cannot even see them because they just died out in the bush. And have you ever sat down a tree with a koala? 
That is a wild animal that should not be there with you that comes down the tree and holds your hand and you give it a pot of water and it just drinks and drinks and drinks. And what do we say? I can only say, mate, I am so sorry that we have done this to you. There is no sheep, there is no cow in my district anymore. The farmers are going broke, talking about good for the economy. I can tell you it's not. Our businesses are dying, but the wildlife is what gets me. There is ewes that give birth to lambs and they are just walking away. The farmers come to me and in my clinic and say, Gundi, we have never seen this before, ever. The cows get stuck in the half or in the nearly empty dams, then they have to be shot. The poor farmers, I can, I can show you, they are in tears. Bulls are going infertile, the mares will not get pregnant, there is not any food growing in my whole district anymore, and that is climate change, and that is expensive, and that is sad, and it makes me cry. And I wake up in the middle of the night and I have nightmares, and I wake up and I see the smoke outside and think, this is not true, we cannot have done it. But we have done it. We as people have created that. And I feel so sorry. I look at all the animals and I can just apologize. And you know that's not enough. We sh as humans, we have to change our ways. And then came the fires. One billion animals. One billion. And that is without the snakes and the frogs and the insects. And that is without the birds falling from the sky and the sugar gliders and all the animals that got burnt and the firefighters tell you about the screeches of the koalas while they're burnt alive. We have to change collectively. So we have to be responsible and we have to be intelligent and we have to be smart. As a scientist, I can tell you we cannot live without nature. We need nature to be part of us. And if nature gets cranky, as we have seen, it's not very pretty. So we have the solutions. There's hundreds of solutions from regenerative agriculture to finding alternatives to plastic, to renewable energies. We, have, we are so smart as people. The solutions are there. So why don't we? And why don't the politicians up on that hill do it? This is a question of intelligence. And it's a question of not being stupid and short-sighted. And we as people are smart, we'll find a way. If a doctor tells you you're dying of cancer, change, you should change. Listen to the science. So, nature is suffering. We have Dr Michael Banyard here outside the Government House in Canberra and we've just been at a most interesting talk about Veterinarians for Climate Action. Michael, tell us about that organisation, especially in this bushfire crisis that most people are finding as a spur to do something about climate action. What are you feeling um, needs to be done? Uh, so Vets for Climate Action is a group that's formed um, recently and um, because vets, um, um, because vets interface between uh, animals, the environment, and people, um, as uh, climate change has developed, and particularly since the cat the catastrophe of this uh, fire season has been, uh, it's been very important to bring this group together to, uh, because there's a deep feeling within that group and with uh, veterinarians at large that they need to contribute more. What are veterinarians seeing that's different? Uh, well, I think um, veterinarians, particularly those that work uh, with wildlife conservation and uh, work with farmers and farm animals, are seeing the impacts of the, the lack of feed, the decreasing habitat which is available, for example, for koalas and other animals that live in the, the forests and have, uh, of course, the, the essence that um, uh, is, is forgotten 
uh, is that wild animals depend entirely on their own um, mechanisms to survive. And um, so the amount of forest which is available, the uh, health of that forest, whether it's got old growth trees in it that provide uh, nesting uh, boxes or nesting niches for those animals to reproduce, all of those things are absolutely critical. And so veterinarians which are involved in looking after wildlife see on an ongoing basis animals that have been displaced from their natural uh, habitats by changes, many of which have been generated by, the, by human progress. A good example of, of that, which has been a, a, a great problem, recently Hendra virus, which um, kills human beings, kills horses, is a disease which is in fact carried by bats. And the reason it's become, it's called an emerging disease because it's one of these that we hadn't seen until recently when it, it, uh, it, it occurred in Brisbane initially. And the reason it's a problem is because the habitat the, of where the, the bats were living has been disturbed and they're now having to forage further and to encroach on uh, suburban areas to find food. I am not in love But I'm open to persuasion When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. But with Aboriginal tent embassy downwind from Parliament and in a little shady place where I've met David Marr. His name is spelled M-A-H-E-R. It's not the famous writer, David Marr. This is a famous, um, I think, a tree planter. Um, David, I was very... People told me that your talk was very good at the uh, People's Assembly yesterday about rehydrating the earth and I think this is an urgent problem. Most people listening will be wondering how on earth do we rehydrate a landscape that's drying out so much from climate change and other reasons. Can you just talk to that, tell us a bit what you said to the people yesterday? Uh, well, it, there's been pro- it's been proven for a long time now that there's methodology available to rehydrate and to return rivers to their uh, more or less sort of a natural state. Um, and yet it's a pretty simple process really it's um, uh, it's based off you know when people are trained to a certain degree they can they can get an idea of how to read the landscape and where to put the interventions that used to they basically represent the wetlands that we remove which was a government funded process back in the between the 1860s and 1940s and the process of doing that actually drained entire watersheds so um, uh they knew they knew that water would take a hundred days to move through these systems, and then after they removed them, they took six. So if they were looking at think, systems that are like an ecological plug in the catchment, you can see how quickly they, they would be removing and draining, you know, large areas of land. So it's a pretty simple process to put, to get that stuff back in place, and we can have we can return our rivers again. You know, it's it's it's. Um, have you seen it in practice or have you I've implemented done, I've, I've it? I've done it in practice. I've taken a dry riverbed before and, and um, turned it back into a, a continuously flowing stream. Um, you know, so I know that it can be done, absolutely. And obviously I've had uh, a bit of a relationship with Peter Andrews over the years and, and um, worked on various properties with him. They're, they're remarkably cooler. This is the thing we're producing all... When we have water in the landscape, we're exporting water vapour. When we don't have plants mediating energy, we have this massive surface area that isn't processing heat. The energy can't be created or destroyed, so we've got to know that all of that energy is going to the atmosphere. So really, in the the future, with carbon drawdown being such a critical issue, unless we get our heads around how to actually store carbon in the soil for long periods of time, at the moment we are exporting carbon and water to the atmosphere at a greater rate than we receive it. I imagine I've heard about Peter Andrews 
work and I've seen Tarwin Park, that's farmland, that's farmland. But what about forests? Because we've had these recent bushfires, like this huge geography of forests on fire. Is it possible to rehydrate that land? I mean, some of these forests had never burned before, tropical forests. The biggest threat to rainforest today is the short water cycle and the landscape that goes on around it because when they overheat, everything that's hot moves to cold and the fires get sucked into the forest because they're cooler than the surrounding landscape. It, it's, a, it's frightening that people don't understand this stuff. You know, people don't, I ask people, do you, know, you recognise that, that water vapour is a greenhouse gas? Well, every time we put a hand over the kettle, we burn ourselves, and we generally people don't really even realise that the potential of water vapour to heat things up or the absence of it and the damage that it does to the landscape. So how would you rehydrate a forest? It's a really established forest. Uh, there's patterns in the landscape. They're reoccurring. They're predictable. So if there's some serious erosive sort of energies in place, it's quite simple to pick out the correct places to put things. could be a log, a fallen log that's already... You know, you don't necessarily need to do major works in, in some places. It can be just a matter of well, what we're standing in front of and now done with a shovel, you know. So there's, there's lots of things that can be done to hold water in the landscape, um, whether it be the forest or, you know, in suburban back, you know, yards and whatnot. Waters that are coming off concrete surface areas, we can be funneling that back into places and cooling down streets and neighbourhoods, you know. So. You'd like to see all the footpaths with holes through them down to the under undersoil. Sure, we can retrofit, you know, uh, existing curb and gutter arrangements so that when there's a heavy flow of water, we're funneling that into rain gardens that are not just, you know, they're cooling, they're attractive, they're beautiful features in the. Yeah. It doesn't sound like a very expensive thing either. It's cheap. It doesn't. It do, really doesn't need to be um, outrageously expensive. You know. It's a, What's the resistance then? Because I've this has been these ideas have been around for a while. I haven't seen them in action myself, and I've heard people talk. Much about money is made out of water. Go on. Well, what was the what was the minister that just got uh, had caught with his finger? Uh, no, no. Um, uh, sorry, slipped my mind, but he got he. Um, he got stung for $20 million worth of Murray-Darling water in an offshore bank account. You know, there's people in the... People are being protected, people are making money. Yeah, I've heard the um, Bruce Shillingsworth, for example, from Murray, the Darling Barker, you know, and he just says it's being siphoned off and then traded, like, on a, on a stock exchange. That's criminal, isn't it? That's really criminal. That is one form of corruption, but what about the climate-changing pattern how do you protect your land you know like how, i don't mean just private people's land but i mean public land like these big forests how do you so, sorry if i steer it in an opposite yeah. direction for a second okay. but the landscape actually plays a significant factor in what we're seeing is extreme thermal you know release of energy super storms and it's come a lot of it comes because we're exporting the wrong types of heat so bare landscapes produce sensible heat and they create like this belly of hot air in the atmosphere that holds water vapour up above it. So water vapour will go to 40,000 feet and fall as ice from those places. It's not meant to be... You know, but so long as we've got this belly of hot air, it holds the rain systems offshore and prevents the... It's six, we know that 65% of inland precipitation is a direct result of transpiration. And unless we have plants actually seeding the clouds as they, and it needs to be kept cooler, hot hot always moves to cold if the landscape's hotter than the ocean the winds blow offshore and vice versa if we keep it cool you know, the old people talk of the Tanami winds that, that used to take the rains into the deserts that no longer as soon as we drained and removed the original forest system that was that stopped so in a nutshell starting with the mangroves or not you know the uh, what did you call them wetlands mm-hmm. plug those so that there's no runoff from mm-hmm. there and upstream well, you, you would start at the top and, and contour if, if necessary. Contours really replace what the roots of trees used to do. They sort of they, they push the water sideways and, and, and always try and slow the flow down. That's right, yeah. Thank you very much. That's David Ma in his garden here in front of Parliament. Thank you. Next speaker 
is a doctor for the prevention of war. And I'm sorry, but I missed her name. She got huge cheers when she said we need a mental health intervention for the Prime Minister and his cohorts whose incompetence and arrogance know no bounds and are taking us over the brink. Wars also demand vast budgets. Australia's fleet of F-35 fighter jets so that we can attack other nations costs $17 billion plus additional unknown quantities to actually operate and maintain them. But in December last year, our Prime Minister committed just $11 million, less than one thousandth of the cost of the F-35 fighter jets to increase our capacity to fight fires from the air. These priorities are truly insane. Perhaps the most insidious aspect of, of wars on climate is that they prevent the very agreement and cooperation that is needed between nations that's desperately needed to address our climate crisis. In addition, environmental degradation and climate disruption are huge risks for armed conflict as resources dwindle, rivers dry up, crops fail, then tensions rise. And we've seen this in the Darfur and Sudan, Sudan and in Syria and in other places. Dwindling water access looms as a risk in further risk of further wars in the Middle East and in South Asia. China, India, Pakistan, all nuclear armed, rely significantly on meltwater from the Himalayan glaciers, which are warming up. For all these reasons, XR peace has emerged in the UK as an essential part of the XR movement, and it's emerging here in Australia. If you're interested, please check out the XR peace Facebook page. I'm going to bring in another word here, the word security. The word used when our governments want us to go off and attack some, invade somewhere else, or when they want to boost the profits of the war profiteers. Right now, Australia has a naval ship heading for the waters off Iran, and we're told with straight faces that this is going to help keep us secure. Another lie and another perverted notion of where our security really lies. Meanwhile, our government is negligent on the two greatest threats to our security, which are climate change and nuclear weapons. And let's remember the 14,000 nuclear weapons that still exist. Just two weeks ago, on the 24th of January, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists advanced the hands of their doomsday clock to the closest they have ever, ever been to midnight, ever, since 1947 when the clock was begun. And that was in recognition of the twin perils of climate change and nuclear weapons. Our government has done its best to stymie global action on climate change and did its best to kill off the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty, which it still refuses to sign. To use Greta Thunberg's words, how dare they? How dare they talk to us about security as our country burns when they reject global cooperation, they kowtow to the world's biggest warmonger and their notions of security are limited to security for the war profiteers and the big polluters. Let's look at an analogy from the world of medicine. If a patient in hospital was suffering from overload of a drug that was being prescribed, blood levels were too high, and if a doctor came around and kept pumping more of that drug into the patient, he'd most likely, he or she would most likely end up in court and be deregistered so he or she could do no further harm. And yet where's the equivalent measure? Courts or at some mental health facility for a PM and his colleagues who encourage the pumping of carbon into our atmosphere at dangerous levels. People whose contempt for knowledge, whose arrogance and incompetence know no bounds. How much longer must we suffer under these people? And this is not a partisan call for a Labor government, for a Labor government. Until Labor urgently declares the need to phase out fossil fuels, they are part of the problem as well. 
What each of us does now is extremely important. We must use our money, our time, our skills, every other resource we have to continue and strengthen this struggle. We must cut through the lies and the vested interests. We must demand genuine security for all people and work with the parliamentarians who are with us on this. And above all, we must persist, persist and persist despite all the setbacks. There are many of us. We far outnumber the climate deniers. And even as we grieve for what we have lost as a nation, we must build our solidarity and take strength from one another. Thank you. To finish, we've got Jane Morton. She's a well-known person in Extinction Rebellion and the whole climate action movement. She's been around for many years, putting her word in and her expertise. She's published books. She's encouraged people. She's really been there. And now she's encouraging these people at the on the lawns of Parliament House in Canberra and the smoke was billowing up over the hills behind. There were smoke masks in, available for people. It was a, you know... The bushfires are still going and this is February and it's in Canberra and Jane advises us and impassions us to be brave. Um, of course, yes, it's a climate emergency. I've been campaigning for a climate emergency as a message and as a, a policy uh, for 12 years now. The sad thing now is that time has run out. We had a decade, the critical decade, just finished. So... That was the year, that was the 10 years we had to get to zero. We didn't get to zero, now we're in a lot of trouble. Um, what Shell and Hoover says is that if we, whoopsie, if we get to four degrees, um, his estimate is one billion people survive. That's everyone else dead, right? What Will Steffen says is that we don't quite know where the tipping point is for a cascade of feedbacks which will take us to four degrees and kill most people on Earth. It could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be in five years, it could be five years ago. We actually don't know where that cascade of tipping points gets triggered. So, are we facing an emergency without a doubt? And it risks human extinction. We're already in the middle of the sixth mass extinction of the creatures, the natural world. We can see it suffering, we can see the mangroves dying, we can see the trees burning. But we are risking extinction of humans as well. And we are not, like some people go, oh, how, how, many, how many climate refugees can we take? No one ever thinks that Australians could be the climate refugees. I don't know quite who's going to take us, like New Zealand, maybe Tasmania, I'm not sure. Um, so the message is that we are actually all in it together. It's not that, you know, oh, the poor people, they're going to suffer, but the rich people like us, we're going to be fine. No, we actually can mobilise everybody. We can mobilise the 99% because we are all in this together. If we are bold enough to tell people that we are risking extinction, to get all the lower level demands, climate emergency, we're risking extinction. We're all in it together. It's time to tell the truth. And part two, it's time to act as though the truth is real. If we really believe that we're risking extinction, that at any moment that could be triggered, what does that mean about how we act? Well, I think a rebellion is a large part of it. Um, we have to declare a climate emergency. That's part of telling the truth. We're never going to get the speed and scale of action that we require unless we declare a climate emergency. That has to be our central demand. Every other um, local campaign has to be under that as the overarching demand. Um, we have to get to zero as fast as humanly possible. Then we have to keep going with drawdown until we restore a safe climate. That's part two. And part three is sometimes described as, as beyond politics or outside politics, but it's basically we have to do it in a way that is very much about fixing a fundamentally broken political system. Like we had the climate election last time, remember that one? With um, Clive Palmer apparently kicked in 80 million, 80 million to make sure. 89? I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, it was a lot. Um, we had the Murdoch Press, just like a campaign organ for the other side. Um, but that's not the half of it. We've got an economic system that's broken, that's based on endless growth. Well, what chance is there we can continue endless growth on a finite planet? So our politics, political system's broken, our economic system is broken. We have to, I agree, keep working and doing what we can inside the political system, lobbying and all that sort of stuff. No problem with that whatsoever. But I think it's actually time to rebel. If you think it's really that serious, consult your heart, think how you want to be remembered as things turn to shit as they are, more and more think, how do I want to be remembered? I want 
me, I want to be remembered. I did everything I could. Um, as um, Kate, oh, the scientist, Marvel, says, at this point we need courage, not hope. We don't know if we can fix this now. We have stuffed it. Um, we need courage. Like when people go off to war, they don't go, oh, I'm only going to go if I can win, you know. We have to throw everything we've got at it, be as brave as we each personally can, and, and find our courage. Thank you for listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show, broadcasting from Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Radio Skid Row in Sydney. Tonight's show takes us to Canberra, where we heard from the people at the People's Assembly, Climate Assembly, and it's a new form of extending democracy. So first we heard Tim Hollow, who's from the Green Institute, who's masterminded the whole thing and who's very big on amplifying democracy and making it more inclusive. Bruce Shillingsworth talking about the Darling River, the tragic state of that river without water. Mark Butler, Adam Bant, Larissa Waters. There was a veterinarian called Gundy um, and Dr Michael Banyard. They were both from a new group called Veterinarians for Climate Action. David Ma on how to restore water in the soil. There was a doctor also, I did catch her name, from Doctors Against War and uh, Jane Morton from Extinction Rebellion. I'll do a further show on the remaining interviews I did at this event. It was very, very uh, rich in people to talk to, and I hope you find this worthwhile because we need to have more education and more chances to talk to each other about these things, not just sitting passively in an audience asking one question or being told, don't make sure you don't make a speech out of this. Often we do need to make a speech. We need to process things. And this People's Assembly gave us a very uh, good way of doing that. So thank you for listening. Uh, tune in next week, 5pm, to Radio 3CR. Good night and good luck. To finish, we'll hear from Carmen Morgito, who sang at the summit, surrounded by smoke and surrounded by people bustling. The recording I made wasn't very good, so she came into the studio and recorded her song, The House is on Fire. Your House is on Fire. It's inspired by Greta Thunberg. My house is on fire Will you call the fireman Will you break down the door And help me out There's no escape The world outside's on fire too And the firemen aren't coming They've run dry today Defunded just like health And science and education All the kinds of innovation We've been waiting, we've been praying.
Make a like the house is on fire. Make a like the house is on fire.